just me, but uh, the three the three girls, two girls that I brought with me. Well, I brought three, but two are mine. And so we're all struggling with allergies. So if you see me with a runny nose or maybe a cough, it's not because I'm sick, although my family would say I'm sick in the head. But it is because uh, Cincinnati is just awful for allergies. And uh, I was trying to remember the last time I had allergies. It was when Danny, uh, Jeremiah, and uh, Daniel were ordained. It was in the spring season, and I was here, and I just... Well, the floodgates opened where you didn't want them to be opened, right? And so, anyways, thank you for being here this morning. Let's, this evening, let's read Psalms 147, and we'll read the first 11 verses to 147. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcast of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and great power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth up the meek. He causeth the wicked down, casteth the wicked down to the ground. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God who covereth the heavens with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. He giveth to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. Yet he delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. Brother Tim, will you ask God's blessings? You may be seated this evening. Psalms 147 can be divided into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 11, focuses on the saint. The second part, verses 12 through 20, focuses on the Word of God. This evening's focus will be on the first part, verses 1 through 11. In particular, my aim this evening is to answer two questions. The first question is, how does God help the hurting, the afflicted, the one that's in pain? Most of us here, were on the other side of 50. Pain is a part of our life. Not just physical pain, but we've experienced a lot of hurt, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, 
Job says in Job 14.1 that a babe is such just a few days and full of trouble. The word full there in the Hebrew means enough. Most of us are 50, 60, 70 years times a few days and multiply the pain that we've had to go through. So it is important to know how God helps those that are hurting. The second question I want to answer this evening is, who does God take pleasure in? We're constantly being bombarded with with the forces on the outside. The prince of the power of the air is in a constant, ever-ending battle, never-ending battle to try to convince us that life is summed up in us. Not only do we have battles from without, but we have the old man from within. Honestly, there are times when I think I'm losing my mind over who I am in Christ. And with the battles that I have raging within me, along with the battles that are outside, I need God to constantly remind me who he takes pleasure in, the kind of person he takes pleasure in. So this evening, those are my two aims. How does God help the hurting? And second, who does God take pleasure in? Now, within both questions, a preamble sets these the answers uh, to these two questions. And so first this evening, how does God help the afflicted, the hurting, those that are in pain? Let's see the preamble in verse number one. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. In verse number one, the word praise or praises occur three times. In the Hebrew, there are three different words translated as praise in this verse. The first praise sets the tone for the first, and the phrase, praise ye the Lord. In that verse, in that phrase, praise ye the Lord, the word praise means to celebrate God. God is worth celebrating. No matter the time or the season we're in, God is always worth celebrating. I enjoy celebrating when my team wins. I enjoy celebrating when my children reach some achievement. A few weeks back, my girls graduated from high school. We celebrated. Sometimes we celebrate when a much-deserved promotion occurs to a co-worker. And we also tend to celebrate our hobbies. Not saying we shouldn't celebrate any of those. But if we do celebrate those, then the Lord should be celebrated even more than those. No matter how much pain you're in, whether you can't move your leg or you're struggling with asthma or you have sinuses, God is worth celebrating. He is worth celebrating Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And he's worth celebrating Saturday and Sunday. How often do you celebrate God? How often do you take time to just celebrate the Lord for who he is and for what he's done? Verse 1 gives us three reasons we should celebrate the Lord. We should celebrate the Lord because it is good. If you ever want to know what is good, celebrating the Lord is always good. The second reason is because 
celebrating God is pleasant. The word pleasant in verse 1 means delightful. And third, the reason we should celebrate the Lord is because it is comely to celebrate the Lord. The word comely there means suitable, beautiful, attractive. I'm looking in the audience and I don't see a lot of attractiveness. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Right? You could be asking the same question like I'm not seeing a lot of whatever you want to call it behind the pulpit. But it is always attractive to celebrate the Lord. If we're going to celebrate the Lord the way the psalmist intends on us celebrating the Lord in verse 1, then we need to keep two things in mind. The first is, we must have a high view of God and a low view of man. Let me ask four questions. Are your problems bigger than God? Is your schedule more important than God? Do your activities take precedence over God? Or are your thoughts more important than God? If you answer yes to any of those four questions, then you have a lower view of God than you should and a higher view of yourself than you should. Throughout the Gospels, we read of Peter struggling with this concept. Sometimes in the very scene, he expresses this high view of God and closes the scene with a very low view of God. In Matthew chapter 14, Peter did something that no other person other than Jesus did. He walked on water. The reason he could walk on water was because his faith in God was big. He had a high view of Jesus. He believed the words of Jesus come out of the boat would sustain him to stand on the water. But before the scene ends, most of us know the story, his fears became more important and had a higher place in Peter's life than Jesus. In Matthew 16, Peter declares who Jesus is powerfully, right, passionately. He says, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited victor. And he's the son of God. And just a few verses later, Peter is busy rebuking Jesus because Peter had a high view of himself and a low view of God. So on one hand, he had a high view of God. Then he closed the scene with a low view of God. Whenever we have a high view of God, you can be certain humbleness is the spirit. And whenever you have a high view of man, you can be certain pride is the spirit. Let me illustrate maybe a high view of God. And Johnson, if there was a Mount Rushmore for American women of faith, Ann Johnson would probably be the first on that mount. She married a young man named Adnaron Johnson, and Adnaron Johnson became the father of American foreign missions. Together they did phenomenal work, did a phenomenal work in Burma, now known as Myanmar. Even though she didn't live very long, died in her early 20s, the short life that God gave her had a lasting impact, not just on women in her time, but even women today. She gives this diary, she writes in her diary, upon the, the day God saved her at the age of 16. She said, A view of God's purity and holiness filled my soul with wonder and admiration. I felt a disposition to commit myself unreservedly unto his hands. 
and leave it with him to save me or cast me off. For I thought I could not be unhappy while allowing the privilege of contemplating and loving so glorious a being. I felt myself to be poor, lost sinner, destitute of everything to recommend myself to the divine favor. I knew, she says, that it had been my it had been the mere sovereign, restraining mercy of God, not my own goodness, which had kept me from committing the most flagrant crimes. This view of my humbled this view of myself humbled me in the dust, melted me into sorrow and contrition for my sins, induced me to lay my soul at the feet of Christ and plead his merits alone as the ground of my acceptance. A young lady at the age of 16 who understood the importance of having a high view of God. The second thing we need to keep in mind, if we are to celebrate God the way the psalmist intends us to in Psalms 147.1 is, we need to view not only the celebration of God as good, beautiful, and delightful. We need to view God as good, beautiful, and delightful. It's easy to just have those words flow out of my mouth. In fact, I hear this quite often. People say, God is good. And what's the other half? God is good all the time, right? And yet I wonder how often we struggle with that truth. Deep down to the very core of the essence of our being, do we really believe God is always good? Maybe think about it in these terms. If your world collapsed today, is God still good? If you're stricken with a debilitating disease, is God still beautiful? If you unexpectedly lose a loved one, is God still your delight? At the end of last year, my grandson was in the hospital, what seemed like forever. He was in PICU. And I had spent many hours there helping out the Coopers as uh, they worked and had a new baby and had a, another young baby still in the house. And so I was up there many nights. And it was distressing, difficult. And there were times in that hospital stay that I wondered, God, are you there? I questioned the very essence of goodness in that hospital. It was a fire that I had to go through, that God allowed me to go through to show me that he is good and he is beautiful and he is delightful. And so God is worth celebrating. He's worth celebrating because he is good. And we know that all things work for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Again, using Anne Judson as an illustration, she's no longer 16. She's in her early 20s. Their first child they had on their way to Burma was stillborn. Their second child while in Burma, and keep in mind, Burma would have been this primitive, dark, difficult country. 
unlike anything we could probably imagine. So while there, God gave them a second child. They named him Roger. After eight or nine months of life, God took Roger. And in her diary, she wrote this. Our hearts were bound with this child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw that it was necessary to remind us of our error, to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may we so improve that he will stay his hand and say it is enough. It is easy to read that diary insertion and think God is this vicious, vengeful God. But when you go underneath the very words of what was written by Anne, what she really wants is to keep God delightful. That's what she yearned for. She misplaced it, thought it was in Roger, her son. And in the passing of her son, she realized how valuable and good and beautiful and attractive and delightful God was. So she didn't want Roger's life to be lost in vain. She wanted to be happy in God. One former pastor once noted, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The next two occurrences of praise or praises in verse 1 are associated with music. For instance, for it is good to sing praises unto our God. And second, praise is calmly. Now the word praise there has the root meaning, has the same root word as the first praise, the idea of celebrating God. But there's a prefix to that word which adds a flavor to that word that speaks of celebrating God through hymns. Let me ask you, just how many of you celebrated God through the two songs that were sung tonight? I mean, really celebrated God. See, this is what the psalmist is saying. Music is a beautiful vehicle that allows godly saints to celebrate God. Whether you sing one song, two songs, or 23 songs, it doesn't matter. Are you celebrating God through the songs? Now, we tend to have a problem, right? We sing maybe 40 or 50 or 60 songs regularly out of the hymn book, so we know almost all the songs by heart. And if we're not careful, our muscle memory just kicks right on in, right? In. And before we even know it, we're on the third verse. And yet... Celebrating God is so instrumentally important if we are to have a soft heart for the preaching of God's word. Colossians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says, let, thy words, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Sometimes it's discouraging where, where I pastor, it's just the way the church has always been, and I didn't see fit to change it, but the pastor sits up here. 
So not only do you get to see the people as you preach, you get to see the people as you sing. And there are times when it's deflating. And then as I get deflated, I'm reminded, okay, you're allowing them to prevent you from celebrating God. See how vicious it is? How deceptive Satan is? I would get discouraged because someone isn't singing or someone isn't focused. And then I'm the one losing and I'm the one sinning. Now, why is it important to celebrate God? Because God has some very tough things to say in verses 2 through 6 that we're not going to glean the, the nuggets of truth and we're not going to apprehend if we're not in the business of celebrating God. So how does he care for those who are hurting, afflicted? Notice first, in verse 2, the Lord doth build up Jerusalem. So what follows in the second half of verse 2 through verse 6 is, how does the Lord build up Jerusalem? So the first question I asked myself as I looked at this psalm was, okay, you have the Lord. And the King James, and I suppose you all have the King James, whenever you come across the Lord and all the letters are capitalized, L-O-R-D, it's always Yahweh. Transliterated Jehovah for us. Now, in Israel, Jehovah served four different functions. First, Jehovah was Israel's name for God. Allah would be Islam's name for God. Baal would be the Canaanites' name for God. For Israel, it was Jehovah. The second function that the name Jehovah served was, it usually speaks of God, this superior and out-of-touch God in a very personal and intimate way. I am thankful that even though God is holy and he's so powerful that he created the universe, yet he's still personally engaged with his creation. The third function is it speaks of God being a God who keeps his promises. And the fourth function the meaning of Jehovah is self-existing. See, God doesn't need anything to exist. We do. Right now, I need puffs to exist, right? But we need oxygen, food, and water. God needs nothing to exist. He is a self-existing God. And so whenever I come across Lord Jehovah in the Old Testament, I'm interested to know what function does that name serve in the passage we're in. Now, the good news is I don't have to go very far. Consider verse number four. He, now that pronoun he, backs up to verse number two. So we're talking about Jehovah. Now, he telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Just a few hundred years ago, astronomers thought there were only a thousand plus stars. Now they recognize there are billions of stars and yet possibly billions more yet undiscovered. God knows exactly how many stars are in the universe. And he has a name attached to every star. And that's mind-boggling for me. God's mind is never scrambled, right? My mind gets scrambled all the time. 
I'll call Brittany Aaliyah, Aaliyah Brittany, and if my mind is really scrambled, I'll call Brittany Jeffrey. But God's mind is never scrambled. He never forgets. He never misspeaks. He knows each star, where it is, and what its name is. The illustration there speaks of how personal and engaging God is with his creation. If he knows where every star is and their name, how much more does he know the crowning achievement of his creation, humanity, where we are and what our name is? So this Jehovah here speaks of a personal and intimate God that's purposefully engaged in the lives of the saints. And he's purposely focused and working on building Jerusalem in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, building the church that Jesus Christ himself died for. And so the principles we find in Psalms 147 apply also to the New Testament church in the New Testament. There's one other thing to mention before we dive into verses 2 through 6. And that's all the verbs that are attached to the Lord there in the active voice tense. That means the Lord himself is doing the work. And I'm thankful for that. See, the Lord doesn't need your help or my help. There are times when I'm tired and I'm sore, maybe I walked or... I did something stupid and I ran. And I'm sitting in the chair and I'll say, Brittany, Aaliyah, usually in a very pathetic voice, you know, please rescue your dad. I've fallen and I can't get up. But truth is, I do most of the work, right? Sometimes that's how we think we are with God. God needs our help. God doesn't need us. We need him. A pastor doesn't want a preacher's conversion. He wants a God conversion. You see, a pastor doesn't want someone to join the church because they like the pastor. A pastor wants someone to join the church because they love the Lord. Because the Lord has done a work in their life, right? And so here the Lord is actively engaged and is actively working to build Jerusalem. And how does he do it first? He starts with, in verse number two, by gathering together the outcast. I love Luke's gospel. Even though Luke's gospel is part of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of the synoptic gospels have a different flavor. For me, Luke's gospel's different flavor is Luke focuses more on the social outcast than the other two gospels. The Gentiles, the lepers, the poor, the women. One pastor had written about the gospel according to Luke that it is stories filled with Jesus' ministry with outsiders, outcasts, and outlaws. In Luke 19, you read of a man who was an outcast for two reasons. One, he was diminutive in stature, and two, because of his profession. He was a tax collector. And there grace found that outcast, and he was no longer an outcast. So what, who is an outcast? Today it could be someone who's poor, someone who's despised. It could be someone who had sinned, and their sin had caused them to be an outcast. It could be someone 
who is backsliding. It could be a depressed Christian. It could be someone who is suffering for righteousness sake. They're an outcast in their society. There could be a number of reasons why a person is an outcast. What's important is, and I'm thankful for this, is God is busy, actively engaged in gathering outcasts to himself. Now, it is interesting to note that when God gathers an outcast to himself, he isn't doing positive reinforcement. Today, our society just wants people to be supportive. Now, when God gathers an outcast to himself, you can be sure four things are happening. Number one is this, that he gathers them so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. There is no other power. Not good works, not church membership, not telling them God loves them. One of the reasons the gospel of Jesus Christ is so rejected today is because it starts with judgment. The gospel has no, the gospel has no effect on those who have not been convicted by the law of God. They need to know they've been judged. They've been judged in the balances and have been found wanting. We, we love to get to the resurrection part. But the real emphasis of the gospel starts with why Jesus died to begin with. And that's so contrary to our society's system of thinking. So today we have people that walk down the aisles, join churches, but they've never once have been condemned by the law of God. In effect, they're just adding Jesus to a portfolio rather than Jesus Christ being the portfolio. When he gathers them together, Jesus brings this blessedness and peace of reconciliation with the Father. One of my favorite stories in Luke's gospel is the parable of the prodigal son. The truth is, the parable is not so much about the prodigal son, it's about the son who never left. But I still love the truth of how the prodigal son returns home. And there's his father, busy reconciling the son back into the family. I am so thankful God reconciles us. I am not an enemy of God, and God is not an enemy of me, and I can't express my joy in that enough. As Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 15, we are his friends. The third thing he does when he gathers the outcast is he gathers them into a divine family. As messed up as God's family can be sometimes, and it can be very messed up because, let's just be honest, we're a part of the family, right? It is still a wonderful institution. I love God's family. And fourth, one day, we're going to be gathered out of here and into there. 
will be with him forevermore. Notice the second thing the Lord does that builds Jerusalem, right? Notice verse number three. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. The word healeth there speaks of mending. The brokenness there, it, it's not speaking of a broken leg or hairline fracture. Probably when most of you were kids, like me, we had water balloon fights. When you throw a water balloon, whether you hit your target or not, something happens to that balloon, right? It bursts. And once that balloon bursts, you're not putting that balloon back together. That's the idea here of a broken heart. It's a heart that had been bursted, been broken in so many pieces that it's impossible to put back together. It's impossible to mend. And yet God does his best work when things are impossible. Jesus says to his disciples, though it may be impossible with man, Healing broken hearts is never impossible with God. And I would dare say most of us, if not every person in this sanctuary, has had their hearts broken multiple times over the span of their life. And many of us can testify that God is good because he has healed our broken heart. Now, there isn't a person better at healing broken hearts than Jesus, because there's not a person who's had a heart broke worse than Jesus. Notice third, verse number, verses five and six. Great is our Lord. Now there the word Lord speaks of Adonai in the Hebrew, which speaks of this master, this controller, this Lord in the sense that he has authority to do whatever he wants, right? Great is our Lord, and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Now, that's important for me. It's important because verse 6 says, he lifts up the meek. Does it feel like the Lord lifts up the meek too much? At least not today, right? And if we're not careful, we can listen to the world or even listen to ourselves and wonder, Lord, are you even taking notes on what's going on? Yet, because he's infinite in knowledge, God knows everything. And because he's all-powerful, he has enough power to lift us up. Now, that word lift there, it speaks of testifying. God testifies on behalf of the meek. If you get in trouble with the law today, you'll probably be looking for people to be character witnesses for you, right? I'm telling you, there's not a better character witness than God. But he's a character witness to those who are meek, those who are humble, those who are gentle. And it's interesting because in verse number six, there's a contrast. On one hand, you have the meek. God lifts up. On the other hand, you have the wicked person who God cast down. See, sin is pride. What's going on in our society is pride. And one day God's going to cast that down in his perfect time. 
And in his perfect time, he's going to testify on behalf of the meek. Don't give up. Don't quit. I've known so many people to quit at the tail end of the race. So the second question is, who does God delight in? Notice the preamble in verse number seven. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. Again, the idea, the concept is music is a vehicle that allows us to celebrate God. And in celebrating God, we thank God. If I'm honest with you this evening, I struggle with thanking God. I mean, I thank God in the general sense, right? Lord, thank you for the food that I'm about to consume on the lust of my flesh, right? Sometimes I'll be watching or reading something that Brother Bob Evans posts about some barbecue or some hot sauce. And I'm like, Lord, oh, aren't you good, right? But how often do we thank God? You know, we sing a song often, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one. And yet I don't know very many Christians, to include myself, who count their blessings one by one. Thanksgiving is so critical to celebrating God. So notice from the preamble, you get to Who does God delight in? And he starts this in a strange way. He says in verse number eight, I'm the one who covereth the heaven with clouds and and that prepares the rain for the earth and makes the grass to grow upon the mountains. In verse nine, he giveth to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. So God is responsible for the clouds. He's responsible for the rain. He's responsible for the grass growing. And he's responsible for animals eating. It is interesting that he uses a raven as the illustration for the animals that he feeds. It is interesting for a number of reasons. First, because ravens were unclean in Israel. Even today, they may not be unclean in Western society, but they are detestable. Not only that, but mothers would, after their young ravens can learn to fly, they would disconnect themselves from their babes, from their raven babies, whatever they're called, right? And so these new ravens who are learning how to fly, who just took their first flight lesson and passed, now they have to worry about eating themselves, finding their own food. And the picture here is, as a raven cries for food, there is the Lord coming and providing food for these detestable Unclean animals. But here's what he hates. Right? And you, you, you can see how he contrasts this, right? You have the ravens, which everyone hates. And then, verse number 10, you have a majestic horse that everyone loves. People go to the Kentucky Derby because they love the majesticness and strength and the power and the speed of horses. And yet God says, I'm not a big fan of that. I would rather you be detestable and unclean 
if you're crying to me, if you're depending upon me, than be something majestic and depending upon yourself. So he says in verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him. Now, fear him isn't just about being afraid of God, although we do need a good dose of being afraid of God. But in the fullness of this idea, this concept of fearing God, it is to be afraid of him, but it's also to honor him, to respect him for who he is. In other words, you can't fear God if you're not trusting in God, because if you're not trusting in God, then you're not honoring who he is. If a person isn't trusting God, then they're not honoring God, and they're not fearing God. The Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. So do we fear God this evening, right? Not just this raw, I'm afraid of God's power, but do we respect him enough to put our life in his hands? It isn't just about you know, Brother Head would say this at least a thousand times. God isn't my co-pilot. God is the pilot. I need to be in the back seat and trust where this life takes me. Not only this, but the one he delights in also hopes in his mercy. On one hand, it's Awesome, right? But on the other hand, it means I have problems. In other words, a righteous person doesn't need mercy. It's the unrighteous person who needs mercy. The one who doesn't sin needs no mercy. The one who sins needs mercy. And so you can see what the psalmist is bringing out here. Don't be this majestic horse who's reliant on their own strength. Rather, be this detestable, unclean raven who realizes you need mercy from God to feed you. What I need every morning is to be fed mercy from God. Let me close with maybe two thoughts. Number one is this. Helen Keller, most of us know Helen Keller. She was born blind and deaf, yet she wrote many songs in her hymn books. She once wrote, I have always thought it would be a blessing if each person could be blind and deaf for a few days. During his early adult life, darkness would make him appreciate sight and silence would teach him the joys of sound. Sometimes God allows us to go through the valleys of life to silence us so that we can hear God's word afresh. And sometimes the valley is so deep where we can't see anything so that when we finally see light, we can appreciate God all over. Yet there's still this lingering question 
why does God allow us to go through these deep valleys? In other words, why does he allow us to be outcast or to have broken hearts? Or why does he allow us to be picked on and pushed around because we're meek and humble? Turn your Bibles to Psalms 40, and then I'll be finished. Verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of, the, of a, out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he had put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Now, no one knows for certain when this psalm was written by David. Many believe it was at its coronation. Now, before his coronation, David had spent years, even decades, a little over a decade, in turmoil, in trials, in distress, in the horrible pit, and stuck in the miry clay. Whether this is linked to his coronation or some other event in his life doesn't change the powerful pit that David was in. I ask you, you know, have you been in this horrible pit? Every hand would go up. Some of our hands would just keep going up, right? Or we're in this miry clay, we're stuck and we're sinking, right? We just can't seem to get beyond this problem or this trial or this temptation. The first question I asked myself as I looked at Psalms 40 verses 1 through 3 was, how long did David have to wait before God inclined and heard his cry? <clears throat> so I went to one commentary after another, thinking they're smarter than me, just to realize, though, they could be smarter than me. I probably are. In this case, we came up to the same conclusion. There is no time limit. There isn't a time. We don't know how long David was in this horrible pit. And I'm glad there's no time associated with this horrible pit. Because let's say it was six months. What will we be thinking six months or one day into our horrible pit, right? God, where are you? But knowing that there isn't a time. This could have been years. Upon years. Could have been days. Could have been weeks. But the lessons to learn are these. First, God allows us to go through a horrible pit so that he can reestablish our feet on solid ground. I found in my own life that when I fall big time in my own sin, the recovery is always sweet, rich in mercy, and my feet is on solid rock again. Just my own personal experience. And I have plenty of sin to testify that that's true. But not only that, it's this. It's so that he can put a new song in our mouth. In other words, so that celebrating God is fresh again. It's joyful again. It's rejoicing again. 
So yes, sometimes God allows us to have broken hearts. So that we can rejoice in the Lord, as Paul says, and again I say rejoice. Third reason is when God brings us up out of the horrible pit and our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers see this, it's so that they will fear God and be redeemed themselves. Notice the end of verse 3. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. If God brings one sinner to Jesus, the horrible pit that I have to go through. To God be the glory. And so there's something that we need, right? It's called faith. Even though we may never see God bring anyone to the Lord through our horrible pit experience, we have faith that God has done something great and done something wonderful, and done something amazing. I mentioned Ann Judson. She died before, really, God began to bless Adnar Judson in Burma. See, there isn't a plaque today of Adnar Judson in America, but there is a plaque in Burma of Adnar Johnson. God used him to lead thousands upon thousands of Burmese to the Lord. And Johnson never saw one of them, or most of them. And yet her work was not in vain. So celebrate the Lord this evening. Celebrate the Lord tomorrow and Friday and Saturday. And when you come to church Sunday and Brother Tim comes and leads in singing, the Holy Spirit may descend, revival may break out in your midst, and the celebration may be this sweet-smelling savor before the Lord. And Brother Dan may come up here and not know what to do. He may, say, he may sing a song and a sermon. I'm 53. <clears throat> and I know I'm getting older. Um, my body hurts. My back hurts, not like Brother Green's. If I try to play basketball more than one day a week, my right knee swells up. I wanted my daughter Elizabeth to cut my hair before I left, but she said you looked like a cancer patient. I'm losing my hair, right? It's not coming back. Every time I look into the mirror, which I don't do very often because it isn't pleasant to look into, I see a new wrinkle. A few months back, I'm in my daughter's bedroom and somehow my shoe lace lassoed itself around the bottom of my daughter's bed frame, and I went tripping, and my face planted itself on the door panel, split my 
lift up. I go into the mirror to see if I needed to go to the doctors. And when I look into the mirror, just flayed wide open, right? Stitch upon stitch. I am literally a construction zone. And I say all that to say this. I don't know when my last breath will be taken. But I do want to endeavor to make sure that I celebrate God in the worship service of God before I take that last breath. Worshiping God is so special and we're so privileged. Don't think you have tomorrow, next week, next month to get things right. It is glorious to worship God. Give your all. Let's pray. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, I bow before your throne. So thankful for your word, thankful for the Psalms. Thank you for Psalms 147 in particular, and I pray, Father, that I gave a sermon that you wanted the One Place Baptist Church to hear. I pray that they are fed tonight. I pray the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and allowed them to see how these 11 verses apply to their life. And I pray that when we leave this wonderful building that has seen so many wonderful things happen within the walls, that we'll leave praising God and giving God the glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.